You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Today, Paul, Andrew, Paul, what are you doing? sitting here man i got my my window open it's 60 degrees all the snow from the weekends melting off man I, i'm i'm hearing turkey gobbles in my brain constantly love it ready ready for spring there you go what have you been up to anything did you get out at all uh, i was i went to niagara falls and uh buffalo new york for work last week it was my first time up there um it was bitter cold when i when i went up to the falls and everyone always says like Oh yeah, the American side's got the or the Canadian side has the better view of the falls. I didn't think that it was like that bad. Like that horseshoe fall that everyone like when I say Niagara Falls, like what you picture in your mind, can't see it from the American side. Like you can see like 10 feet of it. And so there's like this giant overlook, like platform that goes out over this giant canyon that the falls is in. And so I'm a chicken shit when it comes to heights. So I walk out like 30 feet on this platform and, and, and keep in mind, thank God I'm the only person here. I'm the only person that, that got to witness me being a giant baby. I walk out like 30 feet and I can feel this platform like moving. I damn near crawled back to the, to, like to the, to the stairs. I was, I was terrified months, absolutely terrified. I could not get back to those stairs. Like I was, I was frozen. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to die right here. So didn't get to see it. But uh, you didn't yeah, get to see it. Time. You didn't get to That's see the cool people there in New York. So you didn't get to see it at all. I mean, I saw the American side, but like the Canadian side, like the horseshoe, like yeah. I, you, you couldn't see it. And and I, I don't know if the border was open, man. I, I wasn't getting into all that. So, gotcha. but I, I saw the American side of, the, of Niagara Falls, which was pretty cool. Um, and then you could walk like they, they had uh, the park had like all the observatories like they were they were like roped off you couldn't get to them because they were covered in snow and ice and but yeah the only spot that i would have been able to see the canadian horseshoe falls zero chance that i was walking out there that's not happening so that's yeah, totally panicked but, well, but you, you. anything exciting going on no i used a little bit of time over the weekend to try and uh, cut up this tree out in the yard it's an one of those osage orange hedge apples oh, yeah they're not fun man and 
I don't know. I was going to try to burn burn it. It's too, it's too wet, though. Couldn't get it going. So I was a failure there. I'm trying to think what else. Lots of driving. Lots of working on my turkey call with uh, Scott Ellis's uh, app there. That Turkey Tech app is tech, I think it's cool, man. legit, man. No, I I love it. Yeah, I I um, I don't know. I keep I keep listening to because you know, I'm I'm a decent turkey caller when it comes to the friction stuff, and then I listen to someone like Scott Ellis. I'm like, damn, how's he do that? And it's just that constant. Like the guy practices 365 days a year. He said. So, you know, if I did if I turkey called 365 days a year, I would be divorced. Like, there's zero zero doubt in my mind that my marriage would would not survive that. That's, so. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot. Um, actually, yesterday we were out driving in the family in the car, and I was actually riding shotgun. I always drive everywhere. But um, I made a point to go through all of my calls while I was riding and working on stuff on my computer. Um, so she, we got to do the owl and the crow and the turkey and elk. She got them all yesterday. It was oh man, two-hour drive, baby, calling and calling and calling. That's awesome. I'm going to try that elk call. I'm surprised she didn't just put me out on the side of the road. <laughs> so, uh, what we got going in the state, man? Anything cool going on? Uh, we still have our controlled hunting access lotteries are, are open until March 31st. Uh, so get on ODNR's website and check those uh, out. You, we we've, we've mentioned this before and I don't know if anyone from the ODR pulls those, but you know, maybe once every decade you pull one of me, you know, pull me for a controlled hunt. You know, I've, I've been donating every year. For years, Andrew, years. So I did it again. Donate, you know, I I say donate because I know it's not going to happen. I'm not, I'm not going to pull it. And if I do pull it, it's going to be the one that's like a four-hour drive from my house. I'm still going to do it, but right. the the trash truck's going on right by my open window. So I'm sure you guys heard all that. So I can't hear it. You're good. Um, yeah, good. What else we got going on? Uh, I, I read an article. There's a fish, some darter, some long, long-head darter was found for the first time in 82 years in Ohio. Musking and River, that's kind of cool. Very cool. Yeah, uh, they found it. They were doing that that electro fishing or whatever, where they shock the water somehow, and all the fish float to the surface. I want to see that. I'd love to be on a boat to do that. That would be awesome. See big old catfish floating on the water. That would oh, be yeah. kind of neat. Like tasing them. Don't taste me, bro. Yeah. The uh, we got a couple new wildlife officers matt roberts and houston wireman have been assigned to highland and shelby counties respectively so congratulations uh to them and what else we got paul the comment period for for the odnr rules uh changes still going on you have until i mean today is monday the 14th you have until wednesday so get on there uh there there's an open forum get on their website um, all sorts of stuff. They're having an in-person comment period. At some, some point there's a meeting. It's all, it's all on the ODNR website, but if you have any comment about the regulations. There's a lot going on fall Turkey hunting. They're, they're, you know, we're losing proposed to lose I, you know, it's two or three weeks. I think two on the back end, one on the front end. So that's got a lot of people's feathers ruffled up pun. Absolutely intended. Um, there's a lot going on. So yeah, take a look at it. Yeah. So, um, on our front, we just want to let everybody know that, um, we're pretty excited, but we are going to be partnering with the guys over at tethered. 
Um, so you've heard me talk about uh, my saddle hunting experience over the last uh, year or so. But if you're not familiar, it's either, uh, Tethered is a team of saddle hunters that are dedicated to bringing the best products to the saddle hunting world. Uh, if you never tried it, I, I'm all about it. So I think it's something you might want to look at. TetherNation.com is their website. They've got all kinds of stuff on there. Um, but it's extremely light, durable. Uh, once you're tied up in the tree, I mean, you're safe. I actually feel way more safe in the tree in the saddle than I ever did in a tree stand. So, uh, and honestly, it's like sitting in a hammock, man, Paul, you're getting up there this year and you're going to be in the, the hammock as well. You just hammock, have to, you might have to have a bigger that, but... tree than I have, but, um, yeah, super comfortable. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm excited, man. I, I, the only time I was in that, in a, in a saddle, let alone that was at the tethered booth at ata down in louisville this year you look I will good say, you look it was good com- it was comfortable but i was you know nine inches off the ground so you know there wasn't the fear of of you know falling out of a tree but i did feel i did feel comfortable i'm looking forward to getting into it we're going to video some of that and put my descent uh into a tree on a, on our youtube channel and instagram and go wild and all that good stuff so it's gonna be awesome speaking of tethered and go wild nice segue here buy your tethered stuff on go wild uh you guys know it you've heard us talk about it social media social media community it's a platform you can buy all sorts of awesome stuff on go wild i'm on there months is on there show pages on there i love that uh there's no censorship i mean i every day you see it there's someone new that has been censored on facebook twitter instagram because of a hunting picture and sometimes it's not even like a kill shot it's just someone with with a shotgun or a bow dressed up in camo and they're getting censored. They're getting kicked off of these platforms. So it's just a matter of time before this is the only outlet for, for, for people like you and I months, man, to get on, engage with community, uh, members. So time to go wild.com, download it, Apple, Android, get on there, find us. So. Absolutely. So, uh, for us today's show, we are going to actually got two little, well, one little, one large segment. So first off, we're going to talk with Tony, Oh man, Tony V. Benziano. You said it right during the interview. I did because I had it in front of me. Um, I and, spelled it out. And he's with the uh, oh, what is it, Paul? Open season. Open season. The open season X show that's coming up in in Columbus this week. This weekend months. Yeah, yeah. It's this weekend. It's it starts, I believe, on the seventeenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth, and twentieth. It's at the it's at the fairgrounds, the Ohio Expo Center. You can get on their website. We talked about the website. I think it's openseason.com. Um, there's going to be a ton of people at this show. Yeah. So, but we'll let there's t- some really good. We'll let really t- good local guys be there too. Yeah, we'll let Tony give the talk here, uh, and then we'll be we'll be right back with you after we get done talking with Tony. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Tonight we got a, a quick rundown here for the upcoming Ohio. Uh, Sportsman's Expo. That's not the right name. Open Season Sportsman's Expo. There we go. Uh, and we've got Tony Veneziano uh, with us today. I think I got it close, didn't I? It's perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, and he is. Well, Tony, tell us about what. What do you do with this? this as far as the show goes and everything. Uh, I guess my official title would be PR manager. So honestly, a little bit of everything. We all kind of pitch in, you know, we help on the operations side. We help on the ticket sales side. Whatever needs to be done at a show, we all kind of kind of come together and make it happen. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we've got the show coming up here. Uh, when we release this, it will be 
uh, March, what, 17th, uh, 16th is when we'll release this show. So that following weekend there um, is when everything will be going down. Do you want to give us a, a rundown? Is Did we have the show last year? I can't remember. No, actually, last time we had it was 2019 because 2020, we were a week out. We were actually in Lansing, Michigan, getting ready for the show up there. And it was noon, and we were just about to open the doors, and that's when all those edicts came down with the not being able to have gatherings and all that stuff. And we actually had to tear all the stuff down, pack it in our trailer, head back home. And then, obviously, the rest of the 2020 shows got canceled, unfortunately. And then 2021, we were able to come back and have shows, but we didn't have Ohio. So, yeah, first time since 2019 that we've been back in Columbus. So, definitely looking forward to finally getting back to Columbus. Awesome. Well, tell us, what, what do we got to look forward to this year? Man, there's a lot. I mean, obviously the exhibitors, everybody's chomping at the bit to have a have the show in Ohio. I think there's over 250 exhibitors right now with tons of booths. I mean, all kinds of neat stuff there. You know, you have your outfitters, your people with all your equipment and gear. And you know, we have hunting, fishing, some outdoors, camping type of stuff from exhibitors and vendors. So all that kind of stuff. But then I think what a lot of people really get excited for is the seminar speakers. I mean, the people we have coming, there's some great people. You know, we have people like Eddie Salter, the turkey man comment uh byron ferguson he does the archery trick shot show which if you've never seen that it's it's something to behold his, his wife holds up the balloons or the or targets or whatever she's shooting at the dime or, or lifesaver candy and, and he knocks them down so that's always neat to see uh jason clark he does a snake show which that's it's really entertaining. I'm scared of snakes, but I love his show. Like, especially kids. I mean, it, it, he brings people up on stage and they get to interact and, you know, you learn a lot about snakes, but it's also very entertaining and, and humorous. And even Byron in his show, he has a lot of humor as well. And Eddie too. I mean, really all, all the seminar speakers, you know, it's, it's not just standing up there and reading a PowerPoint or something, you know, they, they do hands-on stuff. They share stories. And a lot of times the stories, you know, from all their experiences out in the fields over the years is some of the coolest stuff you hear. So those guys will be there. One of the neat things, I don't know if it's ever been in Ohio before, the hog tank, big 5,000-gallon fishing tank, basically on wheels. Uh, they made a trailer basically into this huge aquarium, stock it with fish. We'll have a couple uh, uh, fishermen, pro fishermen, Billy Hurt and uh, Eddie, Eddie Levin, leaving the other guy doing them. So that's something pretty neat that, you know, you get this huge fish tank, the guys climb up top, and, and they give some demos, and they, they, they tell stories as well when they're doing it. So pretty entertaining. So uh, a lot of stuff for people, you know, it's not just walking around shopping you can you can see these guys learn some stuff ask questions and you know that's something that's pretty neat is you can go up to them go up to their booth you know have one-on-one -on -one time with them a lot of times you go to shows you you don't get that opportunity and these guys all very personable love interacting with the with the attendees so that's that's a great thing in itself do people have to register for the seminars or is that included with admission nope, to the, nope. yeah that's that's part of your ticket the, there'll be some tv screens in the entryways that'll have the times uh friday afternoon there they start every every half hour there's a new seminar saturday they start in the morning go all day i think till about five or so o'clock and, and then on sunday they go till i think about two o'clock the show closes at four so usually an hour or two before the show closes when the last seminar is but yeah part part of your ticket and also part of your ticket you can enter to win draw uh door prizes we have drawings all day we'll have qr codes on the tv screens walk up with your smartphone scan the phone get entered to win some prizes so all all kinds of stuff going on throughout the day I remember a couple of years ago, the, the ODNR had, and I talked about this on one of our shows just recently, had like a, uh, 
a display of deer that were that were illegally harvested in the state of Ohio. Are they going to have that there this year? Do I don't know? know if they will. If they do, yeah, it's definitely always one of the most popular things. They had a they had a name on it for life of me. I can't think of what it was. I, I want to say like the Wall of Shame or something like that. And yeah, definitely people people went to that and and it is something good, you know, to see that you know, and they're out there promoting how to do things the right way to have your license and everything. So yeah, I'm not sure if they'll be there, but if they are, that's definitely always, always a popular thing when they're at a show. Yeah, for sure. Now, what, what, uh, do, do you have any specific like, kid specific things, uh, for, for families to do? Yeah. I mean, there's some of the, some of the exhibitors, they'll have archery lanes for kids and O'Byron Ferguson, the trick shot shooter. He has a hoverball range where it's, it's a blow up thing and the hoverballs kind of, you know, hover in the air and the kids can shoot with that. Um, sometimes around the fishing area, there'll be some things that kids can do as well. And obviously, like I mentioned the door prizes, kids, kids can win door prizes as well. And, and you mentioned the families, we do have a family, a pack of tickets. If people go online in advance, you can save a few bucks and, and buy a family pack, which is a good deal. And, and we also have a, a weekend pass on there. Those are, those are only available online. So we definitely encourage families to go online, save a few bucks. And it's, it's a great thing to bring the whole family out there. You know, there's, a lot of education for youngsters. That's the you know next generation to be outdoorsmen and conservationists and coming to shows like this, hopefully it'll pique their interest and, and keep them coming back and, and wanting to be part of the outdoor community. I think one of the, one of the speakers that I'm looking forward to the most is Alan Propes from North American Trapper. Is he doing seminars? Is he at a booth? What's, what's he getting into? Uh, both. Yeah. He'll have his booth. He'll have his traps at the booth. You can check those out. I, I think he'll have some of his jerky and meats as well. He does, he does some of that stuff and he'll definitely be having seminars and yeah, Alan, a very interesting guy. I mean, obviously an accomplished trapper, but a lot of people don't know he played minor league baseball for a number of years. So he's a, a pretty athletic dude. And, and yeah, now he's in the outdoor world and doing the meat thing as well. And, and he may has some good jerky and some good meat that he processes. So he's, yeah, he's, he's a cool guy, tells great stories during his seminars. And he's another one just walked up to his booth and have a conversation with him. And a lot of times he has prizes that he gives away during shows too. It is a lot of, of, of come, come to the booth and sign up to win prizes. So yeah, cool. A cool guy for sure is Alan Probst. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the star of the show, if I, if I had to guess, and this is just my opinion is going to be, it's not a person. It's going to be Dustin Huff's number two world typical deer. The largest deer taken in, in, in America, the United States will be there all three days on display. I think that'll be, that'll be really neat. So I'm excited to see that. And is Dustin going to be there as well? He will. Yep. He'll be there all three days as well. And yeah, that's, that's an amazing, amazing buck that he got. I mean, it's yeah. People will be stopping by there for sure to see. I, I don't know exactly where they're going to have him set up, but they'll probably have him in a, in a pretty high traffic area and it'll definitely stop the crowds as they're walking by when, you know, when they see that beast. Oh yeah. That is that amazing. Amazing deer. So <laughs> yeah, it's a good story too. If you haven't heard it, you can, you can, you can look into it. So so a lot, a lot going on. The show is at the Ohio Expo Center, which is the fairgrounds for you folks here in Ohio. Friday, March 18th, Sunday to Sunday, March 20th. Tony, what else can people look forward to at the show? I mean, just, just coming and having a good time, you know, getting to be around people that are like them who have the same interests. You know, it's been 
couple of years since I've been able to be in Ohio and a lot of people just clamoring to get out and see, you know, sometimes at these shows, there'll be people you'll run across that that's the only time of year you see them. And, and some of them are the exhibitors and the vendors. They remember, you know, people have been coming to the show for, you know, other people, oh, I've been coming for 20 plus years or whatever. And they walk up to somebody and start talking to them. Like, you know, they, it hasn't been two years since they see them. It's like they seen them yesterday. So just, just a lot of camaraderie among people, you know, like-minded people and, and people who love the outdoors. And that's what we like to see and, and be part of. So, you know, that's a great aspect. Like we said, all the different seminars going on. I mean, another one is uh, Eddie Salter, the turkey man. I mean, he tells great stories as well. And he's from down south, so he has, he has the southern accent. I think that adds to it as well. When you're hearing him tell his stories, kind of that adds some flavor to it. So just, just a great mix of people on the seminars, a great mix of booths and exhibitors. I mean, you know, people people are itching to, to be able to get out there and sell their products. There, unfortunately, has been a few vendors who have had to pull up because they just don't have product right now, you know, and that goes back to everything we're kind of dealing with in the world right now with the supply chain and all that stuff. But for the most part, all the big exhibitors are going to be there. And a lot of them are at, they were at the show we had in Kansas last weekend and they'll be at the show in Wisconsin next weekend. So they kind of make a circuit of it here this month. It's a busy month for the outdoor community and everybody's just looking forward to being in Ohio again. It's always a great show and definitely been way too long since we've been up there. Well, I'm just looking at the, the pricing here online and stuff. What a 26 bucks for a one day family pack. I mean, you can't do much for 26 bucks with the whole family. To get your two that is a great deal. Yep. So give you yep. something to do and break that that winter blues. We had a uh, a real nice weekend last weekend, but I think this weekend we're back to reality in Ohio. Um, so, but Tony, where can people find more information? Yeah, they can go online, openseasonsportsmansexpo.com. And like you mentioned, that family pack, that's only in advance online. So you got to take advantage of that by buying that ticket online. You can also go to local O'Reilly Auto Parts. They're selling discount tickets as well all the way through the show. You can go on a show day and save a few bucks by going to your local O'Reilly as well. So openseasonsportsmansexpo.com. All the seminar schedules up there. You can look up the exhibitor list and see where everybody's booths are. You can see all the ticket prices and, and what time things are going on. Well, if that's if you don't have anything else, I think that that gives a pretty good rundown and gets people uh, excited for the show. So we're looking forward to being down there. Yeah, we can't wait. Thank you guys. Appreciate you helping us spread the word. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Thanks, Tony. Take care. Thank you, guys. I don't know about you, Paul, but I'm looking forward to that show. It'll be nice. Uh, a lot of fun. I was looking at the the layout of the floor and stuff, going and seeing a bunch of. Companies from around the area and around the country. It'll be a good one. Yeah. It is going to be cool. A lot of, a lot of good personalities or some, some, some cool vendors that are going to be there. So yeah, we'll be there walking around and buying Turkey calls. I don't need and whatever else. So yeah, good stuff. So for the meat and potatoes, and we've been kind of teasing this for a few weeks now, um, but we were pretty excited to get this talk put together. We've got Mr. Lindsey Thomas jr. With the national deer association and Mike Tonkovich of the Ohio Department of Wildlife. Deer Program Administrator. Deer Program Administrator. I never get it right. So, uh, and we're talking about the deer herd in Ohio and kind of more on also on a national level. So, we'll just state how it is. Uh, one of the topics that we talk a lot about is CWD. And I know it's one of those topics that can be a hotbed issue for people that, you know, want to believe it or don't want to believe it and that kind of stuff i get it okay i get it and 
all I would say is as we go through this, just keep an open mind. Um, I think that there's a lot of stuff there that we can all do to make sure that deer hunting is better for the long run. To be honest with you, you take the whole CWD thing aside. What I took from um, Mike more than anything is that we have a very large deer population in Ohio and we need more does to be taken. We got to bring the numbers down so that these deer can um, you know, grow larger and more healthy in the habitat that they have. So, but the, the CWD stuff is good. Um, learning about the deer herd in Ohio, especially after this year's hunting season was good. I thought it was a, a, Mike and Lindsay are like, are uh, like brothers going back and forth on stuff. So they, it was, it was a good, good conversation. Yeah, it, it really was. And, and if you're still listening, thank you. Um, I know a lot of people tune out the CWD conversation. We ask all those questions um, about, why we don't as hunters we don't see cwd in our up in our face you know and we talk about the correlation with uh with communicating cwd and you know kind of the, some of the the things that have happened in society where we shut down because of covid we, we just don't we don't want to hear it we don't want to hear the doom and gloom we don't want to hear the government bullcrap and months you and i are probably as i don't know i don't want to say closed-minded but like you know we take the information and that's us like that. I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to take the science. I'm going to take the info. I'm going to form my own opinion and no one else is going to change it. I'm right there. I'm, na- and- I'm naturally a skeptic. Like that's just how yeah, I am for sure. And it's uh, yeah. because I like to know and understand how everything works. And if I can't figure it out and somebody can't tell me that that's where I start to question things. So I, I another thing I know, and we, I don't know if we got into it on the, the talk that much, but there's a lot of research being done right now. And when it comes to the CWD stuff, I'm not sure they really know a whole lot. And they're still learning and, and more and more every day. Um, was it Case Western that has some of the research going on up there? I think so, yeah, up north. I think Lindsay so, told us that. about that. I think Georgia, yeah. University of Georgia's got a bunch. Anywho, they're working on it, folks. So uh, this was a good talk. and It was. It was It was a great talk. I personally, a lot of the questions that I ask come from a place of wanting to understand what we're facing. And it's really good. It was, it was a good talk. Um, this is not like a preachy episode. I'm going to be completely honest. This is, this is a learning episode. It was a learning episode for me. It's going to, I think it's gonna be a learning episode for a lot of people and it's an important conversation to have. Don't tune it out. So that's all I got months. That's all I got. Um, Oh, we got, we got our second, second, uh, what is it? Apple review review. Appreciate that. God. You, you, you review us we're going to give you free shit that's the easiest thing Got okay stickers. review it free stuff so uh the o2podcast.com that's our website uh the.o2.podcast on instagram at ohio hunt twitter i don't know what else paul anything go wild o2 oh yeah podcast i'm on there search me paul gamble yes so. and thanks again to our partners go wild and tethered i'm looking forward to working with you guys down the road for a long time so without any further ado rip it rip it what's up everybody welcome back to the o2 podcast today you've got paul and andrew and our two special guests uh mr mike tonkovich of is it odnr or odw mike officially either one andrew would be fine yes uh, the division of wildlife here in ohio or ohio department of natural resources depending on how much time you have to 
to introduce me. <laughs> there you go. We got all day. So, and then uh, Mr. Lindsey Thomas Jr. from the National Deer Association. Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome. And we are uh, very honored to have you both on here this morning. Um, Good morning. Good to be here. So the first thing we're going to start with, you know, Ohio is a huge whitetail deer state. And we just came out in the last few weeks with our uh, our hunting stats for the 2021-2022 season. So, Mike, we want to go through a little bit of that with you and see if there's anything um, more that we need to know or that is worth noteworthy or thoughts that you might have. But uh, we were just talking a minute ago. What did you say the, the first harvest was when you first started it? at the department. Yeah. So I, so I started the division of wildlife, Andrew, back in 1995. And that, that year, uh, we harvested 179,543 deer and, and, you know, you had commented, uh, why is that so significant? Of course, that year was a record harvest. Um, <clears throat> we went on, uh, good, bad, or indifferent to set a number of record harvests beyond that, uh, th- through, the, uh, uh, the early two thousands, mid two thousands. And, I think our, our record harvest was just over 260,000 deer at, at, at uh, I think, 2009. So um, the um, I used that number, the 179,543, to remind folks that at, at one time, um, 180,000 deer was a great harvest um, when they kind of get uh, squeaky about, you know, harvest of 197,000 or this year's harvest, for instance, of 196,988 deer. So it's, you know, of course, it's all context, it's all perspective. And um um, you know, they, they oftentimes uh, want to, uh, I was telling you guys during the, uh, the break there that uh, heck at 196,000 deer, it's hardly not even getting your boots out of the closet um, when you were harvesting 260,000 deer. So it's, um, it was a good season. We're, we're, we're pleased with it. it. It landed just about where we, uh, where we expected. And I say we, when I say we, I'm talking about, of course, my right-hand man and our deer biologist, Clint McCoy. Um, so he's, he's a tremendous, tremendous help with, with all of this stuff. So we were at 197, we'll call it, and 260 was was the big, the biggest number there back in in the late 2000s. So we're down a little bit. Is that was that expected? I mean, and I got obviously we've got what 12, 13 years in there, but um, is that kind of on the trend, or is this a stable number? Do you think that we we should shoot? Yeah. More? Well, you know, it's. Um... <laughs> Uh, as, as I'm sure you guys well know, um, there's there's a lot of social science that goes into managing deer, and um, the, uh, the 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 record number, the record harvest back in the in the late 2000s, there 2009, <clears throat> I think was the peak, and then we started coming back down. Was was really a result of um, our effort to get on top of a deer population that that um, I guess you could almost say uh, I don't I'm reluctant to use the word neglected, but we we had we had really uh, worked hard to get on top of deer populations just about the time I started with the Division of Wildlife um, to the point where we got into them probably a little bit more than than what we had expected. As a result of that, um, we were very, very conservative, very, very cautious about coming back um, too quickly uh, to contain them. So they got ahead of us uh, quite, you know, to, uh, if we're being truthful here, they got ahead of us. And so the, the campaign there in the mid 2000s uh, was designed really to get deer populations back down to much more manageable, much more tolerable, um, uh, much more balanced levels. And so, um, yeah, that, that's that's why it was not we were we, we had no intentions whatsoever of setting records um, and, and this year's harvest. Um, 
Well, you know, the harvest is, I think Lindsay uh, can, can certainly speak to this. You know, this year's harvest is, doesn't mean what it used to mean, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, absolute numbers because of, because of declining hunter numbers, because of hunter preferences and, and so on and so forth. But if we look at this year's harvest relative to last year, um, and I guess if we want to toot our own horn, it, it, it landed about where we expected um, uh, for, for a number of reasons. So um, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, that's really a, a difficult question. There is no ideal deer population, but I, I think in terms of, um, you know, in terms of uh, where our populations, you know, we managed, we don't manage a statewide population. So the statewide harvest really is insignificant. What we do is look at where numbers are in each of our counties. And I, we're doing well there. We've got to turn up the heat. Uh, we propose to increase bag limits in, in a number of counties this year, I think 18 or so to, um, uh, to slow some growth. Um, uh, but uh, overall, I think uh, I think we're doing well. Was there anything that popped out from this year's numbers that you you know found interesting? For me personally, I, I haven't followed it closely enough. Um, I think it's I, I love archery, so the idea of seeing you know the archery numbers, um, you know, like they're decently higher than the the firearm numbers. It's twenty thousand yeah harvest or so, twenty thousand animals. I mean, that to me, it shows got guys out there spending more time really investing in it and really truly hunting, not just going out for a good old boy deer drive, which is nothing wrong with the good old boy deer drive. But you've got a more dedicated uh, hunters that may be out there. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, breaking down the harvest by season, uh, Andrew, really no no surprises there. The archery season, of course, has continued to grow in Ohio, I, I think, I, uh, again, uh, folks at the NDA can, can speak to this a bit better, um, Kit for sure. But, um, you know, where our, our archery harvest is not the highest as a proportion of the total harvest in the country. I think New Jersey and maybe a couple other states have us beat. But um, uh, the, the thing that actually, so, so seeing that jump up, you know, uh, continue to jump is, is, um, is no surprise. Um, seasons kind of fell out where I would have expected, but there was a bit of a disappointment. Um, and I think, uh, if I may use this as a, as a public service announcement, we, uh, um, we were a little disappointed. Um, again, we don't manage populations. We manage really antler and antlerless harvest, um, to, to manage populations. And so ballparkish, you know, we, we, we like to see, you know, we, when we're at about that 60% of the total harvest that's antlerless, you know, we tend to see stable populations when we get significantly below that, uh, we're going to see population growth when we get significantly above that. Uh, we're going to see, you know, herd reductions. And um, we we really were in the market for some herd reduction uh, with this, this year's regulations. And, and the, the big tool was uh, we went from um, having a $15 antlerless only permit, um, which was valid, I think, in 24 counties in 2020, to being valid statewide um, this year. So all 88 counties, the permit was valid. On top of that, um, it used to be limited to a single antlerless permit where those uh, in those counties where it was valid. This year, we went to not only all 88 counties, but we went to we made it uh, possible for hunters to use up to the county bag limit. So, if you wanted to kill three antlerless deer and your bag limit was three, you could use three of the $15 deer management permits. But oddly enough, um, the proportion of the harvest that was antlerless actually dropped this year um, instead of instead of increasing. So that was a bit disturbing. On top of that. Uh, the buck harvest actually was up about 10%, which was a bit disturbing as well. So those two things combined, one telling you that you started the season with um, a good number more deer than what you did last year. The latter, the antlerous harvest, I should say, telling you that you can expect 
with a 54% of the harvest being antlerless, uh, we're anticipating herd growth. So we've been um, hanging placards on telephone poles and finding every opportunity that we can to make sure folks are well aware. And I think that's really what it came down to is that hunters simply were not aware. Uh, we did a, a poor job of advertising the, uh, uh, the permit uh, being available statewide. So that was probably the big um, ticket item, if you will, for this year's season, just the, uh, just the composition of the harvest. And hopefully we can turn that around uh, next fall. Well, I took, I took three of those does and zero bucks. So I did my part. I tried. Wow. Wow. You are, you are in the minority for sure. You are in the minority. I think I was, uh, Dan Grove texted me yesterday. We were on the, in that CWD call and he said, you know, hunters in Tennessee could have up to a 300 deer bag limit in parts of the state and the average successful hunter killed 1.1 deer. So, um, uh, that's a whole nother podcast. We can talk about that sometime, but anyway, that's, that's pretty amazing, Andrew. Uh, I tried. It wasn't, I didn't, I didn't lay off the bucks on purpose. It just didn't work out this year. But <laughs> the, uh, Lindsay, do you have anything on the national level that is worth sharing? Yeah. And I want to jump in too, and, and mention, you were talking about archery harvest in Ohio and I'm going to, I'm looking at our brand new deer report just out a couple weeks ago. And, um, uh, this is from the 2020 dash 21 season. So not, not this one that just ended, but, but the previous one, which is the most recent season where we are able to get all the harvest data from every single state in, you know, like right now we still got some states that are still hunting deer or just literally just finished. So that data is not available, but looking back at 2020, 21, you were asking about the archery harvest and, and Tonk touched on this. Um, in Ohio, you guys had in that year, 48% of your deer harvest was taken with bow or crossbow archery equipment, 48%. That's really high. The national average is 26%. When you look at the national average, 26% of the deer harvest taken with, with archery equipment. And what Tonk said about states that beat you, there's only three. Y'all were ranked four that year in terms of proportion of deer taken with archery equipment. New Jersey was first at 64, Connecticut at 58, Massachusetts at 50, and then Ohio at 48. Illinois was right behind y'all at 46 has what a seven day gun season and I, I don't know how long your bow season is but you know y'all are one of those states where you got a lot more bow opportunity whereas like where i'm in, in georgia we got three months of gun hunting and south carolina's even longer other states like that we don't see that high of a, of a portion of archery equipment to some extent because of opportunity same with new jersey they've got a really really long archery season and very limited gun hunting so um but yeah y'all take a lot of deer with bows and, um, you know, on the national scene, what Tonk was saying about Ohio's harvest fluctuating a little bit, and, and I don't envy you, Tonk, for having trying to manage a statewide deer herd. You know, it's it's like trying to turn a cruise ship on the ocean. That Those things are not maneuverable. And it takes, <laughs> you know, it takes uh, a couple of years to make changes and turn things a different direction. So it is not like, you know, uh, uh, fine scale movements. But, you know, on the national scene, things look really good. Every state's seeing little fluctuations like that, like Ohio is. But, you know, in this deer report we just put out, we pointed out that we killed 6.3 million whitetails in the United States, not North America now, but in the U.S. in that season. And that's the, the biggest total harvest since 2011. And then when you break that down and look at antler versus antlerless, those were both up over 2019. But that buck harvest from that season of 3,041,000 some odd, was the biggest number since 1999. So the biggest buck harvest 
and the goat, the animals harvest was up. So things look really good on a on national level. We've really been hovering around 6 million deer harvested every year for a long time. We've needed to get antlerless harvest back up. We fell down there for a few years where we got back to the point where nationally we were killing more bucks than antler antlerless deer. And we needed to get that back. You know, we need to keep those levels equal, if not exceeding antlerless harvest uh, or antlerless harvest being on top. So we're kind of, you know, we're in a very good place nationally. And I think Ohio is too. Talk, I want to, I want to ask you, you made the statement about being kind of disappointed. You were looking for herd reduction here in the state of Ohio. Is there any, any talk about opening up that, that early muzzleloader season that we had, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, it was, it was in October. If I remember it and correct me if I'm wrong, at first it was just a couple state properties and then it was statewide, wasn't it? Yeah. You, you, you got a great memory. Actually it was 2013 and 14, Paul, um, <clears throat> we have, um, you know, on and off, I've had a number of requests over the years to bring that season back. Um, even, even folks offering up to, uh, offering to, to give up the, uh, the two day bonus gun season in December, um, in exchange for that. And I think it was just, a. we only had it for two years, but, but in the second year, Paul, you, we saw a tremendous, I mean, it, I think in North of 50% increase in the, in the uh, youth harvest and, and, uh, even more, in the uh, in the senior harvest and i think that it comes down to simply weather i mean it was a great time of year to be in the woods and of course um it, it was a unique and novel opportunity to be able to hunt with a firearm and 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 enjoy yourself you know typically when you're in the woods with a firearm when you get old like me the cold really seems to bother you and that's a legitimate we all know that that i mean that is a legitimate factor that we have to consider when we, we you know when we talk about setting season so it was a great season i hated to see it go um but I, I think, uh, you know, we have, I don't know if you noticed the, the regs this year, uh, we have, um, there was a, a early season proposed for the disease surveillance area, rather than making it uh, muzzleloader only, uh, we made it firearms um, and it was either sex. Um, I would like to see us bring, you know, it, it, because I, I know, uh, again, this is uh, opening up another podcast, a uh, can of worms, if you will, but um uh, the earlier you can harvest deer, the better, all else being equal. And um, because I think um, I think with long seasons and very abundant deer populations, um, what you what you encourage is procrastination. Um, hunters just if you have time and you have lots of deer sightings, you're you're going to continue hunting for that buck that you've been watching since June until it gets down to the wire, and then you start shooting antlerless deer, and oftentimes it's too late. So th there is value uh, aside from the fact that hunters really really enjoyed it. Um, there is tremendous value from a, from a management standpoint uh, and biologically. I mean, let's, you know, Lindsay, you've written on this issue many a times. I mean, remove those deer before they're consuming, you know, groceries that you're ultimately going to turn, turn into protein and eat, you know, in, in the form of jerky, uh, reduce those deer numbers before they become, you know, deer car crashes and, and crop damage permit um, um, deer. Um, and so, yes, there, there's tremendous value in, in that early season, Paul. So I'd, I'd like to see us, um, I will continue to advocate uh, to bring that season back um, because I think it was incredibly popular. And, and let's be honest, um, as I said, there's a lot of social science in, in managing deer. And, and I think that's, that's a, a key component there is, is finding stuff that is not only enjoyable, but also can be productive. Lindsay, I have to say something, and, and our listeners aren't going to know this, but every time you take a drink out of that Dwight Schrute coffee mug, I, I have to hold in a laugh. 
<laughs> I, I, I keep smiling every time you do it. So, Lindsay, let's. I, I, I want to talk about R three, and I want to talk about numbers, hunter numbers dropping. And this is this is a loaded topic. It seems to be kind of a splits people. You know, it's kind of a firebrand topic. Um, R three recruit, retain, reactivate. What are you seeing across the country, specifically Ohio? I mean, we've we've had a good conversation with Tonk and some other DNR employees that, that hunting numbers in the state have kind of fallen a bit. Is that nationally? Yeah, we're seeing the trend nationally. Um, and, you know, when you really break it down, what we're seeing is hunters are aging. When you look at the bell curves of deer hunters by age class, we're, we're moving into that phase where baby boomers are uh, checking out of the sport. Um, and I don't mean that literally like dying, but but the, the statistics show that most of us quit at about age 70. Now, there's exceptions to that. My dad's 78 and still hunting harder than I do. Um, so, you know, but the average deer hunter pretty much stops buying licenses and being active at around age 70. And that baby boom generation is hitting that point and beyond it. And so, you know, it, it, those numbers are falling out. We certainly, as we know, are not replacing that age demographic as uh, like we need to with younger people um, and even middle-aged adults. So, um, yeah, it's it's a situation we're going to have to deal with. There's, you know, you there's some issues out there with people talking about, well, we got too many hunters, crowded lands, et cetera. Um, Alex Robinson with Outdoor Life had a good article on this just a couple of weeks ago um, about how a lot of Western conversations tend to be dominating this issue. A lot of Western hunters who are hunting public land out West, um, you know, where showing up to hunt with a very desirable elk tag or, or, you know, in a very desirable area and seeing a lot of people on the trail and complaining about that, but pointing out that, you know, in the East, that's where the issue is. That's where the most hunters are. It's where the deer are. Um, and it's where, you know, most of conservation gets funded, but that there, you know, we're not seeing that, that problem. There is plenty of opportunity. There are plenty of deer. You know, public lands are not as abundant in the east. Most of the hunting takes place on private land in the east, but there is abundant opportunity, plenty of deer, and, you know, we got an opportunity to take more people hunting, and we need to. You know, we have, the National Deer Association has found through our Field to Fork program that there's a huge pool of non-hunting adults out there in America who would like to hunt or are you know, open to that idea if they're approached about it. They didn't grow up hunting. They didn't grow up with anybody in the family who hunts, but they have a sort of, we can call it locavore mentality where they'd like to eat local. They'd like to, you know, eat sustainably. They have that mindset. And if somebody approached them and said, hey, there's a venison backstrap in your backyard, I can teach you how to go get it. They're open to that idea. And this, our success with that field to fork program, which targets adults, um, has been really, really good. And you know, we're finding not only there's there no limit really on space and deer to take these people to go get, we're finding that we can get folks who have their own land or access to places to be mentors to these folks and enjoy doing it, take them and share the resource on their land with these people. So there's opportunities and yes, definitely the need is there. Um, as this baby boom, baby boom generation fades on out of active deer hunting, it's going to become more and more of an issue. And of course, like we know, urbanization and other issues, competing for kids' time, the fact that just the average kid just doesn't grow up in, you know, on farmland anymore, like many of us did, didn't grow, don't grow up in hunting families, that over time is, is going to affect us. 
So yeah, it's an issue. It's something we need to work on. Um, and yeah, we're concerned about it. Did, did we see a COVID bump and is that going to continue? I know that we talked when that first came out you know, the fishing licenses were all selling a lot, a lot of fishing licenses and all that kind of stuff. And there's certain other industries, the golf industry, I know had a great year because people could go out and do that. Did we get that COVID bump for the hunting side of things? And do you, if you did, if we did, is that going to continue? Do you see that continuing or is that something we're going to, it's going to go back down? I'll um, say this and talk, you may know for Ohio, but nationally the data shows that we had about a 5% increase in license sales during 2020. Um, and of course, a lot of people think that was resulting from the pandemic, people being home, people having time on their hands. Um, so whether that was new hunters getting involved or uh, you know hunters who couldn't go to work, they were stuck at home, so they went hunting instead or lost their job or whatever, probably a little bit of both. But what we know is about a 5% bump. Um, the deer harvest we noted in the deer report that year was up 9% overall. Uh, so about a 5% increase in license sales, 9% increase in, in deer harvest. You know, I haven't seen any, any data on whether we can strongly tie that to COVID, but it certainly makes sense, you know, to say that. Whether that's sustainable or not, um, we hope so, but, but I think that that remains to be seen. It's, you know, if, if this was new hunters getting involved, it's going to depend on the support networks that we set up for that. The, the, the community around those people to help them stay involved. That's what we're learning through Field to Fork is for all of us, you know, sustaining hunting involved, you know, is, is heavily tied to the community of hunters, the social group that we have around hunting uh, that supports us in staying involved. So I'll speak to uh, uh, Ohio, Lindsay. We were we were right there at that five percent mark. <clears throat> um, as for sustainable, um, it, it the data would suggest that it's that it's not been sustained. Uh, we saw uh, our first evidence of that was in the turkey season, um, and I should qualify my remarks. Of course, I think it's no surprise that there's a ton of factors, of course, that could influence participation year over year, and, and so we got to be mindful of that as we talk about, you know, trying to isolate. Um, as, as Lindsay was very delicately explaining, you know, we, <clears throat> the data suggest, and, and we, we presume that the, um, uh, the loss of, you know, that five or 6% drop that we saw in Turkey license sales this spring. And then of course that followed with, uh, a small drop in, in uh, deer permit sales and hunting license sales here in Ohio is, is tied to, uh, either folks going back or deciding that, that, you know, back to work or uh, deciding that hunting wasn't necessarily for them. So. I don't think it's sustainable, but also at the same time, as I said, you know, populations, participation, whether a number of factors, whether Buckeye game was, you know, uh, on a particular Saturday or, you know, all of those factors have to be considered when we start trying to explain uh, license sales and deer permit sales. But we did see the bump um, and we lost it the follow this year. I was hoping that just from the, the sheer investment that it can take to get really, and that, that sounds bad because you don't really need that much, but you can go and spend a lot. And, um, like in the golf world, if you out, went out and bought a $1,000 set of clubs, you're probably going to want to use that for a couple of years. If you went in the hunting world and you went out and bought, you know, a $1,000 bow or whatever, then you probably want to use that for a couple of years. I was hoping that we would, people would want to get more out of that in the long run. But um, one other question I had, and Paul, if you got anything else, we can get that too. But I, for Mike on the Ohio side of things, and I've gone through some of the proposals here and stuff, but you talk about trying to lower the, the herd limit and stuff. 
when we only have the ability to take one antlerless deer on public public areas, if I'm reading that right, is that something that you might consider to expand if you're trying to reduce those those numbers? You know, Andrew, that's a great question, uh, but let's think about this for a second. Um, I think it's no surprise that most of Ohio, um, as Lindsay's already hinted, uh, is is privately owned. About six percent of uh, of the state is is in public ownership, um, and and correspondingly, that's about what we see in terms of harvest from our from our public lands. So, so in terms of in the big picture, private land harvest really dominates the uh, you know the the scene. I mean, it it can you know that's where most of the deer are. That's where most of the harvest is coming from. And, and the other point that's worth noting um, there, uh, and it's not say you, that we're not having perhaps some local um, uh, local increases, but but big picture public land is, is not a big issue. And the other thing, I, Andrew, that's worth noting, of course, is that 18, 19, and 20, um, you know, we we imposed those public land restrictions. Uh, those were those were a direct result of years of <clears throat> um, uh, dissatisfaction metrics uh, from from our public land hunters telling us that you know they're seeing more hunters than they are deer um, and and you know really hoping that we would do something um, and I think we're starting to see in fact <clears throat> Clint hasn't had a chance to really dive into the data but this year would be the first year that we'd actually uh, see um, a manifestation of some of those those regulations in terms of the buck harvest of course saving antlerless deer is one thing uh, it takes time uh, you know, year and a half at a minimum, two and a half, most likely for that deer to mature to the point where it could, uh, you know, grow a respectable set of antlers. So we might actually be able to tease some of that out of the data this year. And that's, that was really the hope was to try to produce a few more deer on our public land. So it would probably, and, and folks, interestingly enough, um, so that, so that the, the regulations that we had in 18, 19, 20 was, you know, no antlerless deer after gun season and a single antlerless deer um, we had actually, uh, folks had kind of gotten used to that. When we proposed uh, to return things to normal, um, folks were like, no, 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 keep it the same. We, we sort of like the fact that we're, I think we're seeing more deer um, on public land. So uh, they were, of course, they were adamantly opposed to it right out of the gate. So we, we compromised and, and left the, uh, the single antlerous deer bag limit in place uh, and removed the restriction, uh, which actually, truth being told, you know, the, the, um, no antlerous deer after the statewide uh, seven-day gun season actually had much greater impact on on the harvest. Uh, it protected about 20% of the antlerous deer, whereas because there's so few guys that kill more than one antlerous deer on public land, so um, it 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 will have some impact, but but not much. I think the the, the good news is that folks were really folks were packing up after the seven day gun season and not really using our public lands, which is not what we wanted. But they they weren't about to go out um, and hunt. Uh, public lands and and um, know that you know they're only able to harvest you know only about a fifth of the deer that that are going to be present at that time of year are going to have antlers. So I was one of those guys. So <laughs> Paul, you got anything else before we move on no, to the I'm big topic? To, I'm ready to to dive into the the second half of this interview. So who wants to go first? We got a lot of questions. We'll just give a quick background, <laughs> but the. Uh, so when Paul and I went down to the Archery Trade Association show, we got a chance to listen to Lindsay talk. And one of the things, and it's no secret, no, but there's a lot of people don't want to talk about it. But the CWD issue is real, and it's something that is affecting us. Whether you think it's real or not, it does affect how you hunt, how you move deer around, what you can do with them. And uh, so there's a certain part of it you just kind of get used to 
again, whether you, you like it or not. Um, so what we want to talk about today is, is kind of get in some of the, the nitty gritty um, of the of the topic itself and go through some of the different, you know, issues that, that come along with it. So I guess I don't know who who would be the best, but can we get just a brief background of what CWD is? Lindsay, you might be good on this from the national level because I know it didn't start in Ohio and and kind of where it's at and 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 the, just the overall background. Yeah, I'd be glad to just give the quick, you know, overview, even though Tom's the biologist in the room. And, and so I'm going to have to refer to him on some of this. But uh, nationally, of course, CWD is a neurodegenerative disease. It's not a virus or anything. This is a protein that basically breaks down the uh, the brain system, the, the what's the word, Tom? Uh, the brain, the spinal cord, the, the it's neurodegenerative. And um it started in the West was when we found it in, in deer, mule deer, I believe it was in Colorado. And, and that was in the sixties. It has escaped from captive uh, research areas and gotten into wild deer and gradually moved East. You know, it jumped the Mississippi river into Wisconsin. in I think 2001 um, it, it is, it is spread deer to deer uh, through saliva and blood and feces and urine and, and, you know, the carcass and stays in the soil. It's sort of like radio- radioactivity. It's hard to get rid of. Um, and, you know, the, the major waves it moves are on wheels, moving live deer around state to state, like through the captive deer, deer industry, uh, or even some state agencies move, you know, stocking elk or doing some stocking movements that has the potential to move that way if you don't know the deer, the deer or elk have it. And it can be moved by hunters through carcasses. You know, it... Um, I don't like talking about, you know, CWD as like gloom and doom. Um, it's certainly not the doom of deer, but it is a serious matter that we have to consider. It moves very slow. It's slow to, to act. And so that's why it's easy for people to sort of deny it, to say, I don't see any problem here. Uh, it is a very long-term issue once it becomes established in a deer population. It slowly sort of eats the floor from underneath a deer population till you get to the, if you don't do anything about it, and um, so, yeah, it has sort of spread around through deer being moved on wheels, through natural movements of deer, probably in some cases through hunters moving carcasses innocently out of CWD zones to new areas. We know this is happening, you know, so uh, it's, it's spreading here in the last few months. We've had three new states added. Uh, Alabama and Louisiana in the southeast have found it uh, and Idaho uh, in, out west found it. In all three of these cases, it was situations where these these states were close to other states that had it and the, the disease sort of jumped a state boundary into a new county. So the, none of these were shockers uh, to find CWD in these border areas. Um, but it is slowly spreading. And it's an issue that we've got to do something about. And that's that was really my message at ATA is, look, this is not something to panic about. It's not something to freak out about but it's also not something to disregard. And there's a fight that hunters can join and actions that hunters can take to help slow the spread or to help fight it and manage it and and monitor it in areas where it's been established. And and that's really been our message uh, from the NDA is, hey, this is something you need to be involved in. Here's how to play a role, whether you live in a CWD zone and hunt in a CWD zone or whether you don't, whether you're like me still in one of the states that hasn't found it yet, like Georgia, 
you know, and I feel certain there's going to come a day we're going to find it here in Georgia. That's probably inevitable. But again, it's not something to panic about. We can do our best to try to delay that day. But we also need to be prepared as hunters to know what our responsibility is if it's found in our state to help the agency manage it. Because one thing we've seen for sure, and that is states that that do something about it, states that make efforts to monitor and control it, have the ability to keep prevalence rates low. And that means <laughs> maintaining healthy deer populations for a long time. States that gave up and stopped doing anything, we're seeing prevalence rates go through the roof. And so that's really the message. This is a fight that hunters can participate in. And uh, that's what we want to talk about. I saw a tweet a couple of weeks ago and it was, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was one of the editors for, for one of these magazines floating around and it was kind of stoking the stoking the flames. And the tweet was basically Google CWD chronic wasting disease. And there's like two pictures associated with deer that have CWD and I did it. And the guy's right. There's not a ton of pictures associated with deer that are infected with CWD. You Google EHD and it's just like a horror show. I mean, it's awful. Um, so, so kind of two, two part question. One, what's worse CWD or EHD and two, why aren't there, you know, research pictures or whatever you want to call it associated with CWD, the visual proof and why isn't it readily available with the public? And I feel like that kind of, that's, that's how we process information nowadays is if, if we don't see it in a, a 10 second TikTok or a picture that doesn't exist. Loaded question. Feel free to discuss. <laughs> let's, let's hit with the why aren't there, why can't I Google a picture of a deer with, with CWD? Let's start with that. One. I'll, I'll start in with that one. Cause that's, yeah. I think that's, um, uh, that's one of the biggest challenges I think, uh, with, with the disease. And, and I, I should probably back up just a tiny bit to provide a little bit of context. <clears throat> um, the, um, you know, this, this notion that it's a political disease and, and I've never seen a sick deer and, and, um, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, there, there's, there's, there's some truth to that. Um, and hunters are struggling with that. Um, and, and I think one of the things that, that really troubles me, um, and it, it, I hate to say it, but the pandemic brought this to light for me. And I'll, I'll just, I'm an analogy kind of guy. And this one I think fits really, really well for the situation that we're, that we're discussing more, maybe more broadly with just the issue of CWD. And then we can talk specifically about, um, you know, uh, about not seeing sick deer, but but, but think about this, you know, I, it occurred to me one day, I should, I got to give you a little background because my wife's a nurse practitioner and, and, and been at it for 35 years. My daughter is, is soon to be a nurse, but has been doing, spending lots of time over the last two years in hospitals. Um, both of them, of course, seeing firsthand, um, you know, what, what COVID has, has done and, and is able to do to folks. Um, and I sit down every night, uh, watch the nightly news, get my dose of, you know, get my dose of the news. And, and uh, of course, we've all been inundated with devastation, you know, millions, millions dead worldwide. We're at 900,000 in the U.S. You know, hospital ERs are overflowing. We're, we're putting up tents outside uh, to, to help with some of this overflow and, and some of these um, ICU units. And then <clears throat> I get up the next day. And I go to work and I, and I, and I, for me, um, you know, COVID has been a mask, you know, it's been an, in, it's been an inconvenience of wearing a mask everywhere I go. Um, and I've sort of gotten used to that, but, but the point is, 
is that at night I'm hearing about this devastation. And then by day, I, I have no idea. I can't reconcile the two. You know, I, I just a month ago learned of someone that died from COVID um, and I barely knew the person, but that's that's as close as COVID got to me. So, so how does this relate to CWD? And I think it relates really, really well because let's look at the headlines that we're seeing oftentimes when we're talking about CWD. Devastation, devastation, devastating disease, devastation. It's devastated this deer population. It's a devastating disease. We've got to do something about it. And then you've got the hunter that has yet to see a sick deer, yet to harvest a positive deer. And at the same time, um, they're dodging deer on their way to their deer stand, on their drive-in in in the morning, on their way home. Their wife can't, you know, they're not able to grow hostas. Gardening's impossible. We're we're issuing thousands of crop damage permits. There are deer, you know, people living in in cities are tripping over deer. How How do you expect our hunters, our hunting public, to reconcile these two extremes where we continue in the outdoor, the outdoor press promotes and uses these words like devastation and destruction and destroying the deer herd and we've got to do something. And at the same time, the DNR is saying, hey, you've got to, you know, they're, they're wondering where are all these sick deer and where's the devastation? And show me, show me one deer herd that's been devastated. Okay, so so that's that's kind of setting this tone. And I'm not saying. Um, you know, that that CWD is not serious. Not at all. What I'm saying is that I think if we're going to be successful at dealing with this disease, we have to we have to understand these are the two pictures that we're painting for our hunting public. One is destruction and one is an overabundant deer herd in many parts of the state. And yet, and many have yet to see a sick deer and they won't. Many will never ever see a sick deer. And the reality is the reason for that is oftentimes they're dead before they get to that clinical stage, either from predation automobile accident, or they're more vulnerable to harvest. Um, it's, it's that simple. Or they're going to curl up in a brush pile, and you're not going to see them when they get to that point. And oftentimes what we see when deer get, you know, are chronically ill, ill if they have the opportunity, they're going to hang around in, in developments, in neighborhoods, around houses where they feel secure, where they feel safe. Um, so, so I think there's, you know, there's, there's, um, that needs to be addressed, I think, if we're going to be successful, is, is reconciling these huge differences between what we're telling, what the outdoor press and what agencies, I'll never use the word devastation, um, uh, devastating disease. I, it's just not in my vocabulary because I've not seen it. I think we know two things for sure about CWD. Two things. Number one, it's always fatal. Number two, it's always going to spread. Beyond that, there's a little more that we know with complete certainty. And I think we need to start our conversations with that. Um, and I'm probably getting way off the topic here, but I think it comes back to, I'm gonna tie that back in with why we're not seeing deer, uh, dead deer and, and why that's relevant. I mean, Paul, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and, and I think people trip over themselves when they try to answer that question. And the reality is you're not likely ever going to see it. I know folks in Colorado, one of the USDA grants that, that Colorado picked up, they're trying their best to document with video and, and still pictures of dead deer on their feet, you know, deer dying from CWD, deer and elk dying from CWD to try to make this case that, yeah, deer are dying. But the ball, by and large, you're not going to see a sick deer simply because they're not going to die from CWD. They're going to die. Most deer will die from something else that makes them more vulnerable to predation, whether it's a coyote, whether it's a hunter or an automobile. Lindsay? 
Yeah, you know, just here recently, I've talked to some hunters in CWD zones. Uh, Paul Lanier was one in Wisconsin. He hunts in Richland County, which is one of the, the bad zones there in Wisconsin. And he told me, you know, six out of 10 of the last, six out of the last 10 bucks he and his dad have killed tested positive. But none of them looked like CWD deer. None of them. They all looked like healthy deer. Shared some trail camera pictures, shared some harvest pictures, you know, and, and so these images sometimes you see of lab deer, captive lab deer that are being studied and they make it to the skeletal stage, the skin and bones and drooling stage only because somebody's protecting them. Like Tonk said, in the wild, if your brain and spinal cord, your, your neural system is breaking down slowly, before you get to that clinical stage, you're already, you know, somewhat uh, uh, disabled. Compromised, yeah. Yeah, and so predators, cars, even hunters. You know, Paul said one of the bucks that his dad killed that was three and a half year old, healthy looking buck that was positive, would show up thirty times a day at a watering hole during daylight. That's not normal bug behavior. Even though the deer looked healthy, clearly this deer was not operating with with full uh, all of his abilities. So this is what happens. Another hunter I talked to, Alan Houston in Tennessee, who works at uh, the University of Tennessee's Ames Plantation, which sadly turned up, you know, right in the heart of Tennessee's new CWD zone, said, yeah, 50% of their, their harvest this past year tested positive, but none of them looked sick. Even laying there at the skinning pole, they couldn't look at a deer and say, yep, that one's going to have CWD. They couldn't, they couldn't see it. And, and that's the problem here. With EHD, when you have these random late summer outbreaks, that are unpredictable. You never know what year is going to be bad or what region is going to get hit. But when they get hit, you know, if you're in that area, you're going to walk the creeks and there's going to be deer floating in the creek and you're going to smell them rotting on the wind. It's very visible. Uh, CWD doesn't work that way. So this is the contrast is, is how it's, it's become sort of this sleeper where people see, I say, I don't see the issue here. I'm not seeing dead deer. And um, like Tonk said, I mean, this is, it's kind of like somebody's coming in in the night and stealing some of your deer without you knowing it over a very long period of time. That's the issue here. And in areas where they, the prevalence rate is allowed to keep climbing, eventually what happens is if you look at a deer harvest as a pie and you're taking slices of the pie away, some are going to deer car collisions, some are going to predators, a big chunk is going to hunters. Uh, you know, all these causes of mortality what CWD over time is, is a slice of the pie that's growing and taking those deer away to another cause. And eventually you're going to reach a point where that pie can't sustain as big a chunk for hunters without the pie getting smaller. And there is research in the West where it's been out there longest that shows eventually after years, you reach a point where these deer populations begin to decline because CWD gets becomes a big enough proportion of the pie that's being taken away that it just can't sustain hunter harvest anymore. That's how this works. It's a sleeper poison. And that's the dangerous thing because hunters, again, say, I don't see it. You know, EHD is a bigger problem. Um, you know, it's it, it doesn't matter which is the bigger problem. It doesn't matter whether you could measure that or not. Just because the two diseases operate differently is no reason to take either one of them less seriously. Uh, we have to take CW seriously and do what we need to do to try to deal with it. But like I said, no, it's not going to wipe deer out tomorrow. But understanding how it operates is the very first step. Understanding that you're not going to walk through the woods and see skeletons laying everywhere and see sick deer. It, that's not the way it works. But it's definitely, it, it sounds like it's a generational issue. 
And I mean, obviously it's been around since the sixties out West and it's just a slow process. So as, as hunters and you know, Mike, you brought up the pandemic. I, I feel like that pandemic might create kind of an issue for the way that CWD is like looked at by the general public, you know, going forward just because how, you know, like I said, death, destruction, tents everywhere is a society. We just shut down to that stuff. So, so we've got this generational issue. How do we tackle that, you know, moving forward with the responsibilities that, that hunters have and helping manage this disease? Well, I, I, you know, in my opinion, Paul, I think, I think it, it comes back to, again, just having honest conversations, you know, I, I understand, I get it. I mean, headlines sell stories, right? I mean, they, they sell stories. Um, and, and so, you know, CWD is, is, is the most insidious um, disease that I think we, we will ever deal with as, as conservationists, as wildlife biologists, as, as hunters uh, ever in our lifetime. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, again, back to analogies, you know, it's like asking, it's like comparing a, you know, a heart attack or a stroke with, with high blood pressure, the silent killer. I mean, that's, that's what CWD is. I mean, it's, it, Lindsay, you nailed it. I mean, it's sneaking up in the middle of the night when you're not, when you're resting and it's taking deer from you. So you can't compare, they're both horrible diseases. I mean, EHD, you know, it's just, it's just up in your face, but, but chronic wasting disease, it's going to kill deer, every deer that infects, it's going to kill it, count on it. I mean, I think that's what we know for sure. So many other things, you know, we can look to, we can, Lindsay, you also brought up, you know, the populations that, that have been studied, some of the, some of them mule deer, most of them mule deer, a couple of them white-tailed deer populations uh, in, in the West. Wisconsin, a uh, good friend, Dan Storm, is wrapping up his work in Wisconsin. Hopefully we'll see something there. You know, that was a five-year project, I believe, but, but you know, we, we really don't have the data to point to and say, hey, this is what it's going to do to populations. We've got plenty of models, right? We got certainly got plenty of models, but in terms of in terms of actual studies that have deer on the ground, we're we're pointing to many of the Western studies right now, which is you know those are those are completely different ecosystems and may not be the best models, but but you think about it, it it's spreading and every deer that gets it is is going to die eventually. Now, the um, so so I think I think Paul, we need a restart, we need a refresh. I mean, we we have to. It's been around so, so now we've got 28 29 states okay and, and i feel like we're in a, a pretty unique position you know there's obviously states behind us now but we've got 20 we had 25 states ahead of us to learn from and i'm hopeful i'm hopeful that we can approach this um and i'm not saying we're going to be successful because i can tell you right now we're already hearing pushback uh, on some of the regulations that we propose we're hearing some of these same arguments it's here it's everywhere it's always been here there's no reason to get concerned about it you're going to destroy the deer herd. there's no value in doing it because the environment's already contaminated and so on and so forth but but i'm hopeful that that we can um you know go in and 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 communicate that's uh, number one that's 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 the most important thing uh, transparent communication with our hunting public on what we're doing why we think it's a good idea and how we're going to get it done and, and have honest conversations about and stop with the devastation i mean we have to just tell them it's going to kill deer we don't know what that means in the long term we don't know if it's going to be 50 years if we do nothing we don't know if it's going to jump the species barrier we don't know so much about the disease but and here's 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 why some things up. I guess I always seem to come back to this. It comes unfortunately, it comes down to personal decisions for many of us. How much are you how much are you willing to risk? 
It looks like, based on data out of Wisconsin, that most hunters there have decided that testing their deer, not you know, not everyone, but a vast majority of hunters there have checked out on the testing. You know, they've decided they're not even going to test their deer and they're willing to eat positive deer. They are eating positive deer, Some a small portion of hunters in Wisconsin. So, you know, clearly it's, it, there's no proof. There's, there's not a you know, greater incidence of Kreutzfeldt-Jakob's disease in, in that part of the country where, you know, CWD has been prevalent for the longest. Um, there's, there's a couple studies with macaques, you know, there's, there's not a lot of evidence. So it comes down to what level of risk are you willing to take? And, and, and I think as my personal level of risk is not real high. I don't have, I've got a very, very low risk tolerance. And as long as I'm leading, you know, the deer program here in Ohio, my goal is to try and, and, and stomp this thing out simply because it's, there's so much uncertainty associated with it. So to ignore it is foolish in my opinion, Paul. I think you guys, you have an uphill battle, okay? And I, I try not to get into this conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. The precedent has been set, and Mike, you parallel in this with COVID. I think we've heard for two years about everything you're talking about, devastation stuff, but we've also heard how many people, I mean, I can tell you a half a dozen myself, people I've known have gone to the hospital completely healthy, but they've gone for a knee replacement or something. turns out they're COVID positive. Uh, they don't feel anything. It's any, anything like that. These guys submitting their deer and then getting a result back that says they're positive on something that looked completely healthy. That's hard. To, that's hard to understand. Like if it's if they don't see it and we've heard about false positives in the covid testing and all that kind of stuff. And it's really it's an uphill battle that we're going to fight on on this side of things because of something that really has nothing to do with 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 deer. Does that if that makes sense? And I I think that that's that's unfortunate. But um yeah, I don't. It know. makes perfect sense. It it didn't it didn't help our situation, Andrew, at all. It, it absolutely positively. That's such a. There's so many parallels. I mean, think about it. You know, we were social distancing. We were avoiding large crowds. Think about what that means in the deer world. You know, no baiting, no feeding. It, it, you know, we've there's so many parallels that overlaps so completely with with our, our battle with CWD that it's going to really. <laughs> quite frankly, I agree with you. It's going to undermine our efforts. Um, we're going to need more proof in the pudding and I don't, it's just not there. Well, and with that proof, proof. Um, it's already undermined. I mean, it's been, you know, even before COVID showed up, we had this culture war going on in the country and there was an undercurrent of anti-science, anti-government already out there, you know, just waiting. COVID stoked that, um, you know, the CWD discussion was already running into the anti-science, anti-government folks. Um, but COVID really, you know, lit that on fire as well. And, and you started seeing some of the same conspiracy theories across both areas. Uh, so yeah, it's made it, it's made it very tough. There's a certain group of people out there that just are going to try to derail any discussion, any productive discussion of, uh, the CWD issue. Um, but you know, there's good news. That's, that's what I think is that we've got to be talking about is there's good news. Um, and there is. On the research front, we have to always remember scientists are working on this every day in the background while we're talking about it. There are scientists at a very high level working on this, and though they haven't come up with a solution or a vaccine or a cure or anything like that, or not even close, every study they do, you know, they learn. And we're slowly making advances that I think, I mean, there's folks right now looking at, and I mentioned this at ATA, there's folks right now looking at the ability to train dogs to detect CWD in deer scat. So imagine having a dog that could detect that and being able to really dial in on areas where you've got it 
So, you know, even if we don't come up with a cure every day, we're learning things. And that really is the fight here. It is the hunter's responsibility, our responsibility in this fight to buy time for those scientists to keep working on those things, to hold CWD in as small an area as we possibly can, keep it from spreading while the scientists work on these solutions and we start finding ways to fight it. That's what we got to do. And there's things we can do. You know, in other good news, we know some states are having success at holding prevalence rates low. They're keeping prevalence rates among the deer population in the single digits. And it's keeping them flat. You know, I hate to use a word from the COVID discussion, but flattening the curve. That's exactly what they're doing. They're holding prevalence rates low. In any area where you can hold that disease rate low, you're going to be fine. You're going to be able to sustain hunter harvest for a long time. But in other states that aren't taking steps, like Tonk said, in Wisconsin, where hunters aren't bothering to test anymore and they're not hardly taking any action against it. They're just monitoring. Prevalence rates are climbing steadily on an exponential growth curve. Rates, you know, you got areas in Wisconsin now where 50 and 60% of the bucks in some areas have CWD now and it's climbing. And uh, when you're talking about an always fatal disease, you know, that's not a good thing. But the good news is the areas where we're working on it, where hunters and agencies are working together and taking the right steps to manage this disease, we can keep that disease prevalence rate low. And as long as you can do that, we can live with this. Hunting and CWD can, can continue to work, you know, live together in the same area until better solutions are found. So, you know, that to me is part of this is focusing on the good news. And yeah, there, there, but there are people out there who are willing to listen. There are open-minded folks who, and open-minded hunters who want to help. You know, many of them are out there. Even in Wisconsin, we know folks who are taking steps and working in communities to help the agency fight this stuff. So across the board, there's good news. Across the board, there are hunters who are listening, most of them. The truth is, yeah, we got the ones that whose mind is set. You know, we've got the captive deer industry that is pretty much working against this because, you know, they don't want to see the regulations that affect their industry. So they want to downplay the importance of CWD. There's a lot of headwinds. But overall, um, if we just dial in on what we need to be doing as hunters and listen to our state agencies, work with them, uh, we can deal with this situation. So what responsibility does the captive servant industry have in this fight against CWD? I mean, if, if they're, if they're fighting guys like you, Mike, where, you know, you're, you're helping craft policy for states and, and all of your uh, contemporaries across, you know, the 49, 50 states that deer hunt, what, you know, what, what responsibilities do, does that industry have? I mean, if they're just perpetuating, you know, the spread of this disease across state lines, why do we continue to allow that to happen? Yeah, you know, I, I guess I, I, we have, you know, we, we got to be careful. Lindsay, you did a great job laying out uh, in your um, uh, your overview of, of the disease and how it's spread. Um, I, I've got to, you know, be totally upfront. I have a great, in fact, I got a call at 1130 with our Department of Ag uh, next Saturday. I've got to speak to the white-tailed deer farmers of Ohio. I have a great, great relationship with our captive servant industry here in Ohio. I'm very, very proud of that, quite honestly. Uh, worked hard to do that. Um, and, and the reason is very simple. Uh, in, in most situations, uh, there's a simple strand of, uh, you know, four-inch woven wire fence between their interests and ours. Um, so it, it makes, in my opinion, it makes sense to have conversations with those folks on a regular basis. Our Department of Ag, our captive servant industry here in Ohio, 
We talk regularly. Um, we work together. Um, they are publishing in their quarterly newsletter uh, our, our carcass movement restrictions. Um, I've, I've got them you know, working closely with me to spread the word on this, that, and the other. Um, have very, very open dialogues. Um, we have a um, great re relationship. Now, that doesn't mean I have to. In fact, I've told them I know them well enough that I have no use whatsoever for that industry, um, personally, on a personal level. But but it doesn't. My personality and my personal interests do not matter. It's the it's the resource here in Ohio. It's the deer hunters that I work for uh, in Ohio that, that matter most. I, I leave my my personal preferences at the door when I check in every single day. So I, I think I think there's there's just it. Quite honestly, guys. Um, I think they're the low-hanging fruit. They have been. They have been. Um, they're, they're bad apples. There are definitely bad actors in that group. Most definitely bad actors in that group. But I think we all know uh, there are bad actors and bad apples in our in our ranks as well. And I I know that for a fact. We've had some situations here in Ohio where hunters have, have been told uh, about our our carcass import restrictions and then simply went to another state and bought, brought back a positive animal from from Kansas. Um, so so. Hunter, you, Lindsay, you mentioned on wheels, live deer, whether it's behind a state DNR truck or whether it's you know behind a, a captive servant industry truck, that's one way. But but man, I, I guarantee you we're moving lots more dead animals across the, the country every single year than we are live animals. Um, so, so I think we, we need to be careful about, and I think they're working hard. I mean, I think that, that industry is, is, is doing what they can you know, with genetics, trying to breed, if you will, CWD out of their herds. And if, if, I mean, if they can do that, I mean, that's half, that's a, that's some portion of the bigger battle, right? I mean, if, if we're, um, and, and the fact of the matter is they're doing a lot more testing, uh, you know, they, they find the disease, they depopulate the herds. So if they can breed CWD out of the deer that they've got inside those pens, you know, that's one less, uh, one less to mention that, that I think we have to worry about. So I try to, I try to, when I talk about CWD, I, I really think it's important again in that conversation, let's, let's talk because depending on the audience, as soon as I mentioned CWD, if I'm talking to hunters, they want to point fingers at, at the captive servant industry. And again, I'm not defending them. We know they're bad actors in that group, but at the same time, we've got lots of deer moving around the country. And, and, and of course, CWD does not discriminate. It doesn't matter if it's a dead deer or a live deer or part of a deer for that matter, or mud on the bottom of your boot. Um, it's coming with you um, and you could be introducing CWD into the landscape. So I, I think sum that up, Paul, I, I think we're all better off if we start forging better relationships rather than working on building or tearing down those relationships with our captive servant industries. I, I think I think if you think about it, a woven wire fence between their interest and ours means that I'm going to be working closely with that group uh, rather than trying to distance myself from them. Yeah, and I think it's always really easy to want to make a situation black and white, right? And that they're the problem and we're not and this kind of stuff. But um, nothing in life is, is black and white, right? Everything's gray. There's different yeah. different areas where you've got to pay attention on, on different things. So, Mike, one of the things I, I want to look at some of these solutions, things that we can do to help. Uh, and, and you brought it up uh, with the mud on the boots thing because that, that thought has crossed my mind. I go over to Pennsylvania every year to hunt. Uh, or I go over in the summer a lot of times to hike or different things like that. Can I bring that prion back on my shoe? And is that something that we need to, I mean, the ways that this thing could spread, it sounds just, it's mind boggling, right? Like how, I guess, what are some of the solutions that we're going to look at in Ohio? I know some states, they talk about 
the bucks, the older bucks tend to they move more, so they have a better chance of spreading it. Are we going to increase the buck numbers that we take out? Uh, are we going to look at eliminating things like baiting for the congregation purposes? What are some of the things, I guess, that we're looking at on then that end of it? Yeah, Andrew, that's a great question. And Lindsay, you can jump in here because you know as well as I do, this is going to take a group effort. You talked about hunting. You know, you know, a, a community uh, is necessary to support a new hunter. Um, it, it's going to take a group effort here because the last thing you want to do when I say group effort, you need to have veterinarians around the table. You need to have epidemiologists. You need to have deer managers. You need you need hunters at the table. Everyone that understands the situation, because one group by itself is not going to uh, it's not going to provide the solution. Andrew, you you know, you brought up a great point. Um, so so I could you know if I, if if I felt like um, you know, the, the best way to, to manage CWD is to stop everything. You can't go to PA. You can't t- take your, you can't bring hay back from, from South Dakota. Um, you can't hunt with lures, you know, artificial, you got to use artificial uh, urine. Um, take everything fun out of hunting. Make you shoot mature bucks so there are no mature bucks back in the woods. You know, um, focus on, you know, the, the um, uh, producing a, a younger buck age structure. Then all of a sudden, we started this conversation to talk about hunter numbers. All of a sudden, I don't need an excuse to quit hunting, right? I mean, I've got a million reasons why I, I don't have to be in the woods, whether it's table tennis or golf or seeing my grandkids or whatever the case may be. You don't need to give me another reason to hunt. And I think that's where we need to be mindful and find that balance because regulations is not going to solve CWD. Absolutely, positively, is not going to solve CWD. It's called compromise. I mean, we have to be mindful of the fact. Think about prions in urine. I know several states have imposed bans because there's there is a risk that probably slightly greater than zero um, and, and using, you know, natural urine based products. But then you got to think about it. Is that is that a battle that you want to fight when it's probably a small part of potential source of infection? Um, and I, I'd say no. I mean, that's that's why we're not considering something like that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that you've got to pick your battles with CWD and we've got to find that middle ground. We've got to we've got to use regulations. We've got to understand hunters. We've got to know the uh, the positions that they're in. We talked about aging hunters. You know, we, we've got to understand the demographics of the of the group, and most importantly, guys. I think I think what it comes down to is just honest conversations, like we're having here right now. This is what we know, and this is what we don't know. We have to keep coming back to to that. That there are a lot of things that we don't know about the disease, and one of the things, Andrew, that has not come up yet. And I think if it, you know, because. We can talk about the positives, we can talk about the negatives, and, and the folks that aren't going to believe it are never going to believe it. There's no reason to fight CWD because it's not an issue. I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind if we can't reach them, uh, that group that way, is to talk about dollars and cents that we're spending to fight CWD because most hunters are going to want to know where CWD is. They're going to want to know whether their deer is positive. Like it or not, that's that's a reality. So we as an agency are going to have to invest millions of dollars. And, and I mean, just for instance, uh, you know, budgets, let's start looking at CWD budgets across the Midwest, which is where I'm most familiar, of course. Think about that money. And over the course of a career, how much money is being spent, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that could be used for land purchases, that could be used for something other than CWD, which is, and it's it's taking tolls on people's careers, for goodness sake. So, uh, you know, there's the dollar and cents issue. There's the impact that it's having on people's careers. Um, there's, we could have, um, a very, very lengthy conversation about all of these issues. Um, but I, but I think, you know, back to your original question, I think we just need to be mindful. And I I think that's part of the problem is we're not, 
we also need to think more about education. We need to let folks know. I mean, how many people know that you can bring North hay in North Dakota if there's a, you know, it could be bringing prions back to Ohio if we're if we're moving that around. It, it could be in your in in you know, uh, in your boots or on the mud um, that's attached to your tires. You know, th those, we don't know that. We don't know. And the other thing is we don't know what level, how many prions it takes to, you know, that are infectious. I mean, so that's, that's the challenge is that we have to keep saying these are possibilities. And when someone challenges us with, well, well how much? Well, I don't know. And that, <laughs> that's what makes this disease so incredibly difficult is the unknowns. Well, I think, okay, I'm going to get up on my soapbox real quick. One of the things that drove me nuts about the whole COVID thing was that it was kind of like, and this is from the top of, you know, the media and everything. It was almost like we knew what was going on. You know, don't, you have to clean your surfaces and wear one mask. Don't wear a mask, wear two masks, you know, don't go near people. Nobody really knew, but nobody wanted to admit that. And of course they weren't going to go back in time and say, oh yeah, we didn't know that. So it's, it's kind of that idea that we are all learning as we go on this. And I think is, is we're, you know, the recommendations that are being put out, this is the best guess that we have as how to, how to improve some of this stuff. And we, we're just trying to, you know, do this for the longevity of the herd, for the longevity of the, the sport and the recreation, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Off my soapbox now. Um, what was I going to say? Let me say this real quick on this topic. I mean, so much good conversation here. There's some really good human, uh, re human dimensions research, not studying CWD or deer, but studying people that shows that, you know, when coverage of a, a situa situation like this with diseases, if it's confusing, if it's gloom, gloomy, if it is over overwhelming what you've got to do to fight this thing, you know, too many rules, you know, that kind of thing, or, or just overwhelming, that's what drives people to listen to other sources of information with a better story, to go to someone else who says this isn't a big deal. So that's kind of what we have to think about in, in talking about CWD. And to go back to what Mike was just talking about, um, you know, I'm not going to worry about the mud on your boots or what kind of urine you're using. If I can first just get hunters to submit their deer for testing if they're in a CWD zone and participate in the voluntary sampling that the state is making available to them. If I can get them to leave their deer carcasses in the CWD zone, these bigger issues that carry more risk, let's deal with those, you know, kind of one at a time and not worry about the mud on the boots. Uh, you know, the urine thing, like Mike, uh, like Tom said, is a very, very, that's a low risk. It's not zero risk, but it's pretty low. And in fact, there's even some some folks in the captive deer industry that have gotten together and said, look, we're going to to protect ourselves, to protect our business and to protect hunting and deer. Uh, we're going to have some policies around how urine is collected and how our where our deer come from and screening and monitoring to make sure that we don't sell CWD positive urine. And you can actually now buy urine that says, you know, it's got this stamp, this the producer of this is in this group that takes an extra level of screening and monitoring to make sure this isn't CWD. So, you know, the urine thing is kind of a, it's a minor thing. If when, when the, when we can't get hunters just to submit their deer for testing in an area where they should do that or not bring a carcass home. You know, if, if I go from Georgia and drive to a CWD positive zone somewhere nearby, let's say Western Tennessee and uh, kill a nice buck, throw it in the back of my pickup truck with a bag of ice inside the rib cage and drive back to Georgia, process it and throw the carcass in my backyard and turns out it was CWD positive. I've done a lot more to bring CWD to Georgia than the mud on my boots or the urine I was using. So we got to prioritize these issues and, and keep it, you know, keep it as simple as we can in talking with hunters about what they need to do. 
because, and to go back to the captive thing, that's a whole other issue. I almost didn't, you know, wish I hadn't brought it into the discussion because we need to be focusing on what hunters of wild deer can do. There's a lot of, of blame we can carry and a lot of responsibility we carry for our actions that can help deal with this problem. And that's kind of where we need to stay focused. Let's Lindsay, I got to say real quick, great points. Um, and I think two, two things that the takeaways, I think from this conversation here real quick are, are, are focus on the big issues and keep it simple. I think, I think you, the other is you, you, people are overwhelmed. I mean, we're hitting them with this, that, the other, I don't know whether that can come, whether I can go, you know, what's the rules today? What's the other state's rules? And I think that's what we're working on with these, with many of these groups that, that we're both participating in is trying to find some consistency and messaging. We've got it. We've got to distill this to the things that are most important. And I think that's, that's a critical point. Yeah. So final thoughts and, and thank you both for your, for your time. And Lindsay, I was going to interject that into the conversation. So don't, uh, don't feel bad for, for bringing that up. So I, it's, 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 it's low hanging fruit and a lot of people ask those questions. So final thoughts, Mike, where do we go forward biologically uh, harvest wise uh, in the specifically to the state of Ohio with CWD. And Mike on that, I want to add in that where's Ohio at in, in the CWD battle as, as we stand today. Well, I, I think we're in a pretty good spot guys. We're, we're not done with, with, uh, with the, uh, we've got, a, I think 20 samples left from our disease surveillance area to be analyzed, but, but the, uh, for all intents and purposes, we've got 10 positive deer, eight, eight new ones this year, two from last year, all within, uh, with the, the, the core of them, the core of them are within probably three or four miles of each other. So we think we've, we've identified, you know, the uh, disease focus. We're going to work with wildlife services uh, to do some, some targeted removals after the season. We've got some regulations proposed for the fall that should allow us to harvest additional antlerless and antler deer. And I think, you know, um, our hope is that we can remove some positive deer this winter with wildlife services and and put us in a place. Obviously, we were not going to deal with the environmental contamination that's there for life. But if we can if we can reduce the deer population and more importantly, eliminate some more positives, we're going to contain the disease, slow the slow the growth of the disease. And I think that's really all that we can hope for right now and continue with the education everywhere else in the state and, of course, within the DSA. Let me let me say real quick, too, I want to I want to give some kudos, uh, Andrew, you and Paul, for having talk on your podcast. Um, this is a, a critical thing for the hunting industry, just, you know, communicators that are just deer hunters, um, I think, to help fight this is to give a platform and share their audiences with their state deer project leader, uh, with their state deer biologist, to bring information, um, you know, out to your audiences. This is a great thing you've done. Just what Mike just said right there, what Ohio is doing about CWD, they're taking action. And they're taking actions that, as we've seen in other states, have helped keep disease prevalence rates low. And as long as you keep them low, as I said before, you can deal with this. Hunting can continue. Yeah, there's a few hardships like getting your deer tested and not hauling carcasses, but we can live with those to be able to continue deer hunting and to continue to sustain that, you know, for, for the foreseeable future until better solutions are found. So, you know, uh, kudos to Ohio for what they're doing and the other states that are taking active stances. Kudos to the hunters that are staying engaged and listening to their state agency and helping them fight this problem. No state agency wants this. You know, Tom, you're a deer hunter. 
Most deer project leaders and deer biologists out there working for state agencies are deer hunters. It breaks their heart to find out that their, their deer populations have now got CWD. They can't stand it. It's a terrible thing to happen to them. So for us as deer hunters to back them up, to listen to them, to help as much as we can, that's a very important thing. And you guys have taken a very important step having Tonk on your podcast to help share that information. Oh, thank you for that. I, I can say, Tonk, we've had, I think, three or four employees of the ODNR uh, on the on the show for, for various discussions. And I, I think uh, as hunters in the state of Ohio, we're very fortunate to have people like you and Dave Kohler and, and Mark Wiley that, that I mean, you guys are really good. Yeah. And you see it from just a biologist perspective. And you also see what you do from our perspective as hunters. And I, I, I really appreciate, you know, everything that the DNR has done over the decades. And I, I feel like we have a really strong state uh, right now and, and a strong state going forward in, in terms to, you know, what, what we have uh, with, with the wildlife, the deer and Turkey and, and every other critter that runs around the state. So thank you for that guys. I really, I really appreciate that. So this has been a great talk. I, we could talk for hours. I'm out of time. I think Tonk, I think you said you had a call coming up. So yep. I, I would love to have you guys on again. I mean, we could talk about, you know, CWD and just deer hunting in general, where we're at and R3 for hours. And uh, I, I, I would like to, to keep that conversation going. So it might be something worthwhile there towards the, before we start next season, uh, we can get a, get an update on where everything's at. So, yeah. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Appreciate it guys. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate it very much. And I'd like to, you know, just real quick echo Lindsay's comments. I, we do appreciate you guys having us on the show to talk about this. It, it, I mean, it's communication and relationships uh, are, are essential if we're going to be uh, even remotely have a remote chance of being successful. So really, really appreciate you guys having us. Listen, listen, Mike. Okay. For some of us, you know, we can pull out these things with the funny, uh, the you know, the pretty pictures and stuff, but if, if we can't read, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I'd see the colors of the map. <laughs> so I need to hear it. Right. So that <laughs> this is benefits yeah. me as much as anybody. But, so. All right. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Appreciate it. Go dogs. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Gotta <laughs> stick that in there. <laughs> edit that part out months uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> alright thank you